Good morning. We're so glad you're here this morning. Please stand and greet each other. Say hello.
next song is um, a new one, but the kids will probably know it. It's a travel camp song. It's a, a song that our, uh, the high schoolers do. Um, so Taylor's going to lead this one. Just about Jesus being our lighthouse.
Dressed in his righteousness alone, all is to stand before the Lord, you are our true foundation. There's none other but you. Forgive us when we lay our foundation on other things, on, on lies, deceit. But God, we need to lay it on the truth of Jesus. You are our life and our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's another glorious day, excited to be here with you guys, uh, excited about today, some good stuff happening, and uh, yeah, 
it's, it's, it's a good day. Uh, last couple days, I was privileged to be in Denver for the U.S. MBA National Board meetings. Uh, a couple years, uh, so our, our conference has a national board, and a couple years ago, I was nominated to serve on that with about half a dozen other people, and uh, the leadership team graciously allowed me to do that. So I uh, just recently came back, and yeah, I, there's good stuff happening in our conference, and uh, I come back from these meetings um, encouraged and excited about what is going on. We have some fantastic people involved. Uh, there are, you know, bumps in the road, to be sure, that happens, um, but we just have a lot of great people, and, and some neat stuff is happening. Uh, as many of you probably know, within our own central district, we had, I think it was five or six churches join the central district conference, which is just remarkable. Um, all of our districts have uh, someone called a district minister that uh, serves and, and works alongside. And when churches go through crisis, they come in as EMTs and paramedics and, and just help out. And so our district minister is a gentleman by the name of Rick Eshbaugh. And uh, his district now covers three time zones. And I forget how many states, but he just has a huge uh, swath of land that, that he's responsible for. But. Uh, just wanted to, to just pass along just that there's some really neat stuff happening at our conference, and we're getting geared up for the national board meetings, which will be happening in Salt Lake City uh, later on this year. So so some good stuff there. Also wanted to let you know that our, our nominations for leadership board are now open. Um, the, uh, the Constitution uh, says that um, the, the nominees need a, a three-month period for uh, some training and orientation and reflection. So to meet that time frame, um, the nominations are actually open this month. And there's a description of all that in your bulletin. And somewhere in the back, we've put uh, a box and some ballots. And so uh, if you think someone would be a, a great fit for that, write their name on there, um, stick it in the box, and then we'll... We'll talk to them eventually. So just wanted to let you know about that. Uh, and also, today we are having a soup lunch after church, and, and all of you are invited. Uh, although invited is maybe a light word, um, perhaps more pleaded with um, to, to, to come and attend. Uh, we're we're going to do some soup and buns, and it, it's part of the continuation on creating space for the, conver- for the rebranding conversation. And so to, um, we've had kind of a three-prong approach on how to create conversation around that. Uh, one has been the bulletins. Uh, one has been to connect through Sunday school. So I've connected with the Sunday school class down the basement. Next week I'm connecting with the Sunday school class that meets in the boardroom. Still need to schedule one that, that meets in the associate pastor's office. But then also this, this afternoon. And so we'll, we'll give more instructions later on. We're calling them listening posts, though. We're gonna sp- after we eat, we're going to spend some time in prayer. Lord, what is your preferred future for this church? And then we're just going to spend some time listening to one another. Each table will have a a discussion leader, and their role is not to convince. Their role is just to help you guys talk to one another. And uh, so I'm I'm excited about that. So that's after the church service, and uh, the soup looks really good as well, too, just, just so you know. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll carry on. Heavenly Father, thank you for another good day, another glorious day, another beautiful day, another day of your grace, of your love, of your provision, of your presence, of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we invite you here. Lead us, Lord. Talk to us. Let us honor you with praise and thanksgiving. Lord, we just, we delight in you so much. 
We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Shadow of the mountain you won't climb 
There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, cover me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no that from his glorious unlimited resources you will empower you with the inner strength of his spirit then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong and may you have power to understand as all God's people should how wide how long Thank you, worship team. So we are starting a new sermon series. Uh, it's called We Believe and talking about uh, the MB confession of faith and what it is that we believe as MBs. And at first I thought, this is a brilliant idea. And then I thought, oh, I've gotten in over my head. Um, and part of the reason why I was initially intimidated is because it's not just like what does the text of the confession say, but you also have the history of our denomination, the, the history of the confession of faith, how I would interpret different parts of the confession of faith, and then how all of you would interpret the confession of faith. Some of you have been men and I, like you, you came out of the womb saying MB, right? And so from the very beginning, you have, you have been Mennonite brethren. And so it was kind of like, oh, how are we going to cover all of this and do this justice and that kind of thing? And at first also I thought, okay, no history. We're not going to do history. That's just, that's going to, that's too intimidating. There's too much. And then I started working through it and I was like, we got to do history. Like we can't, and we're not going to do history today, but like, some of our stuff makes the most sense when you understand the historical context 
in which both Anabaptists and the Mennonite brethren were, were born and, and were shaped. Like you just, you have to understand it to really understand our confession of faith and why it emphasizes certain things. Um, as a small example, we have a lot of stuff written on church and state. But you look at verses, like there's a few verses on state, and there's like a few verses on how we as individuals interact with people of the state. I'm not, not actually sure we have any verses that say you as an organized church, here's how you interact with the state. And so other people would look at that and be like, dude, why you got so much stuff on church and state? But then when you go back to the context in which, it, in which the denomination was formed, then you go, oh, now I get it, right? It's kind of like, like, have you ever had, and maybe this happened to you when you were dating, but like you had a friend or something like that, and you're like, nice person, kind of a few quirks. And then you visit their hometown or their family, and you're like, ah, I get it now, right? That's kind of how it is with the denomination and understanding the context in which they were born. We have a lot of stuff written on church and state, but we would look at someone else's confession of faith and be like, why you got four pages on speaking in tongues? You don't need all that stuff on speaking in tongues. But then if you were to go back and look at the context in which the denomination was birthed, and you'd be like, oh, I get it now. So at some point, we, we are going to delve into history, but, but not today, where I, I just didn't have time this week, because that that's, that's a big one. Um, today, we're gonna, there's 18 points in our confession of faith. We are going to try to cover this in six to eight weeks, meaning we are going to try to go after three to four points at a time. And I've simply, we're not going to go through it one to 18, but I, I've clustered them by topic. So today, if, if you want to know, we're actually going over three, four, five, and 18, uh, and that will make sense in a minute. Um, the conference has a great resource uh, um, that they, they've just produced, Confession of Faith, um, because one of the articles, Article 13, was, was retweaked a little bit. And so we've ordered up a whole bunch of these. They'll be free in the back, and you can take it back, look at it, and, uh, and that kind of thing. So that is what we're, what we're starting on today. Um, terms. Let's clarify a few terms, because th this will be helpful, and, and we're going to have to delve into history a little bit here. All right, Reformation. So you go back to, like, a long time ago. Um, I know, technical, you know, terms, long time ago. Uh, the Catholic Church had in many ways really kind of become corrupt because they were basically, you know, for money, you could get your relatives out of purgatory and hell, which isn't the best system and kind of contradicts all Scripture. So, but they, they, so the whole thing is just kind of a mess. So a guy by the name of Martin Luther reads Scripture, and he goes, that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, salvation is by faith alone. It's not something you purchase. He writes up 95 grievances against the Catholic Church, and he nails it to the church door. Wittenberg door, 95 thesis. This happens in 1517, so that's the, Re that's the Reformation. Out of that, you have another group called the Anabaptists, or, or the Anabab uh, uh, Anabaptism, and that was a belief that was born out of, out of the Reformation, and in many ways... They, they did agree and appreciate certain things that, that Martin Luther had started, but they felt like in certain areas he didn't go quite far enough. One of those areas being baptism. When they looked at Scripture, they said, hey, wait, like, baptism is something you do out of obedience, so really it should be a believer's baptism, not an infant baptism. So they said believer's baptism. And actually it's kind of interesting on where the whole infant baptism thing came from. Maybe we'll get into that in, in history or not. Um, but they said, you know, we, we need to have believer's baptism. 
Some Anabaptists were wonderful, great people. Some were not. Uh, it was a little, like just Wikipedia this, but some of the things that were done under the banner of Anabaptism, um, nope, we don't, we're not endorsing that. Uh, kind of some crazy stuff. More on that on another time. Several denominations would say that they have roots in, Anabap in, in the Anabaptist movement. Mennonites, Mennonite Brethren, Brethren in Christ, Amish, um, and actually probably Faith Evangelical Bible Church simply because their name used to be Evangelical Mennonite Brethren Church. Get all that? Lots of words. Then you have Mennonite, the people group. Some of you, many of you, wait, all of you? No, I think we're at most of you. Um, several of you. Your heritage as a people group is Mennonite. So what happened long time ago? You had people from all walks of life who rallied together around a common belief system. But because of that belief system, they experienced persecution and hardship. And so they, they kind of segregated themselves, kind of kept to themselves, lived in colonies, um, moved around. But, but they basically kept to themselves. So after several generations of intermarrying and not a whole lot of kind of external coming in, you basically have your own people group that, that, that has formed out of this originally what was gathering around a theological point. So there is a, a people group, Mennonite. Mennonite also refers to a denomination. Bethesda, Mennonite Church, that is a denomination. Um, we have a lot of similarities with them, but also some, some differences as well, too. There are some distinctions. And then you have us, Mennonite Brethren, and that's another denomination. So in all of this, and as we work through this, um, we're at... Different points throughout this, we're going to be referencing the Reformation. So that's a, a theological revival movement that happened in the 1500s. You have Anabaptism, which is a belief born out of the Refor at Reformation. You have the people group of Mennonites. You have the denomination Mennonite. And then you have the denomination of Mennonite Brethren, which is us, which was also born out of Anabaptism. How are we doing so far? We're good. Some of you, you're like, duh. And others, you are like, why are there so many Mennonite words on the screen? Um, so anyway, just, you know, be gracious with one another. Um, as much as possible, I'm going to try to distinguish between the, these groups as we go through this. Um, this is a Mennonite brethren church. I hope we all knew that. I hope no one's surprised. We are a Mennonite brethren church. Technically... If, 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 if you were to stick to a strict adherence to these terms, this is not a Mennonite church. Because, one, it is of not of the Mennonite denomination. And secondly, we have decided to be open to all people groups. So if your heritage is Swiss, German, Scottish, Irish, Congolese, Mexican, Native American, you are welcome here. So, even though majority of you are the Mennonite people group, we are open to all people groups, and so we are a Mennonite brethren denomination church, but technically we would probably not be a Mennonite church. Hopefully that wasn't too shocking for, like no one's breaking down doors on their way out, so I think we're good. Mennonite brethren around the world. The Mennonite Brethren Church was born in 1860 out of a desire for spiritual renewal. Today, the Mennonite Brethren are in 21 countries around the world. Angola, Democratic Republic of Congo, India, Japan, uh, the Camus People Group, 
Austria, Germany, Lithuania, Portugal, Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, Panama, Paraguay, Peru, Uruguay, Canada, U.S. We also have associate conferences. So those are all full-blown MB conferences. We also have like associate conferences where they're still kind of trying to get their momentum. Burkina Faso, Burundi, Cambodia, China, Indonesia, France, Turkey, Ukraine, Venezuela. Today, the U.S. Conference of Mennonite Brethren Churches has around 200 churches and a little over 35,000 members. The conference in India has 992 churches with 212,000 members. They are six times bigger than we are. The conference in Democratic Republic of Congo has 449 churches and 101,000 members. They are three times bigger than we are. The Canadian conference has 245 churches with 36,439 members, so they just like nudge it to stop by like 1,000 or two. ICOM is the International Community of Mennonite Brethren. That's a neat thing to Google. And it is just this conglomeration of all these Mennonite brethren communities or conferences all around the world. And I would also say that it is wonderful when the overall entity has far outgrown the people group that started it. Many of you would say, you know, our people group, the Mennonite people group, were really kind of the founding fathers of the Mennonite brethren denomination, which is great. But I think it is a wonderful thing that we have so many Mennonite brethren believers in 21 countries and numbering in the hundreds of thousands worldwide. That is fantastic. So here's the big idea for today. As Mennonite brethren, we believe in, in the big story of Scripture. We believe in the big story of the gospel. Kind of the, the four primary points uh, of the story of Scripture or the story of the gospel is creation fall, redemption, restoration. And we believe that. So we're going to cover articles 3, 4, 5, and 18. And hopefully soon the booklets will be here and, and you can follow along in those, but, but that's what we're going to do today. Um, I, I wrestled with whether or not to, to read um, the, the actual confession to you just because I didn't want to bore you too much. Um, but I think it's important, so I'm going to read them. So hang with me. Um, article 3, Creation and Humanity. We believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and they were good. All of creation expresses God's sovereign will and design, but remains distinct from the Creator. The universe belongs to God, who takes care and delights in sustaining it. Creation declare God's wisdom and power, calling all to worship Him. Humans, the crowning act of creation were designed to live in fellowship with God in mutually helpful relationships with each other. God created them, male and female, in his own image. The creator gave them the mandate to rule and care for creation as a sacred trust and the freedom to obey or disobey him. Through the willful disobedience of Adam and Eve, sin entered the world. As a result, human nature is distorted. People are alienated from God and creation. Creation is under the bondage of decay. Humans and all creation long to be set free. Sin, guilt, or death will not prevail. God will create a new heaven and a new earth in which there will be no evil, suffering, and death. The first signs of this new creation are already present in those who accept God's forgiveness through Christ. In Christ, all things are being reconciled and created anew. And then there's like two dozen scriptural references. 
for each of these, I, I want to share, I, I want to highlight a few things on how this is distinct or how this is unique, either within our culture or even on the global landscape, and then just a couple of the applications of this. Because if, if you read some of the commentary that was written along with this, there, like, there is distinct wording in here that was meant to, to, to almost go against some of the prevailing narratives um, in our day. Like, there's some very in, intentional stuff around that. Some parts of the confession of faith are intentionally a little bit loose, and some are intentionally, like, screwed down as tight as you can get. And, and that was all kind of um, inten intentional. All right, so this, how is it unique? Within the first paragraph, there's some critical things uh, that, are, that are countercultural. The first, obvious is that obviously, is that we believe in God. And we believe in a God that created the universe and all mankind. This is in direct contradiction to the narrative that says everything was an accident or that nature itself is a God and that if nature ever ceased to exist, then God would cease to exist. Um, directly conflict, yeah, uh, the idea uh, that it was all by chance. If there's no creator, all of life, li like just, just follow this through to, to its conclusion. If there is no creator, then, then all of life simply becomes survival of the species and my own selfish gain. I read a fascinating uh, biography about, um, I hope I say his name wrong, right, um, Elon Musk, um, brilliant guy out of South Africa, super rich, really hard-driving leader. Um, this guy was involved in starting PayPal. Uh, he was involved in starting SpaceX, which is doing things that NASA and other countries have not been able to do, and he's doing at a fraction of the cost of what NASA can build a rocket ship for. They're hauling cargo up to the, 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 the um, International Space Station. It's remarkable. He also runs Tesla, which is kind of a, a high-end electric car company, and they, make they, they will sell you a battery big enough to power your house. It is remarkable. In all of his endeavors, Elon is driven by the idea that humanity is ruining everything and that our only hope for the survival of the species is to populate Mars. Dead serious. His driving motivation behind SpaceX is that if our species is going to survive, we've got to get people to colonize Mars. Here's the other thing about Article 3. If there is no God... There is no absolute truth. There is no absolute moral code. And, and absolute truth really actually no longer exists. If there is no God, then morality is ultimately subjective. And now I become entitled to do whatever I want for my own personal gain. And the people who resist my selfish living become part of the oppressive system restricting my enjoyment. So yesterday, I'm on a plane they, they've got like the little plane magazine, right? Hemispheres. I'm flipping through that. In there is, I, I, I took a photo of the quote. There's an article, this kind of quasi-famous actor. Um, and, and, and they have this thing, and then they have a picture. And then underneath, they have kind of one of the primary quotes. And he says this, I just love encouraging people to have fun. I don't think any pleasure should be guilty. No moral code gets to tell me what I get to enjoy or not enjoy or do or not do. 
several years ago, a church planner in Vancouver was telling me um, about the gay pride parade that had recently happened in his neighborhood. Uh, the theme for, for, for that year for that group of people was anyone, anywhere, any way we want, and if you don't like it, you can take a hike. But it wasn't take a hike. It was kind of some other more colorful stuff. The theme that year was no moral code, no code of ethics, no higher standard gets to restrict our behavior or our sexuality. We get to do whatever we want. And if there is no God, then the eventual conclusion is, like you just play that out, it really does become we can do whatever we want. Applications on this. For starters, we believe and we endorse absolute truth. Uh, and we don't live in fear of our species dying off because we believe that, that humanity is eternal. You have never met a mortal human being. Everyone you have ever met will live forever. It's simply a matter of whether or not they live forever with God or apart from God. But everyone's going to live forever. Secondly, we live our lives based on a moral code of behavior that God authored for us. We don't get, we don't get to, to write our own. God, and, and, and it's remarkable. Actually, in Joshua 1, this is the only place this happens, God actually promises that if we study God's word, if we put, practice it into our life, that, that we will have a prosperous life when you study and apply God's word. Now, maybe it's not as prosperous the way the world defines it, but it will be prosperous the way that God defines it. That promise is given in Joshua. So, we believe in creation. Secondly, we believe in the fall, Article 4, Sin and Evil. We believe that the first humans yielded to the tempter of Satan and fell into sin. Since then, all people disobey God and choose to sin, falling short of the glory of God. As a result, sin and evil have gained a hold in the world, disrupting God's purposes for the created order and alienated humans from God and therefore from creation, each other and themselves. Human sinfulness results in physical and spiritual death, because all have sinned and all face eternal separation from God. Sin is a power that enslaves humanity. Satan, the adversary, seeks to rule creation, uses sin to corrupt human nature with pride and selfishness. In sin, people turn from God, exchanging the truth about God for a lie, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Sin opens individuals and groups to the bondage of demonic principalities and powers. These powers also work through political, economic, social, even religious systems to turn people away from holiness, justice, righteousness. Whether in word, deed, thought, or attitude, all humans are under the domi domination of sin, um, on their own, are unable to overcome its power. So, how is this unique? So we believe that everything started out great and wonderful and good. God created the world, the universe, Adam and Eve, and it was awesome. Or in God's word, then Adam and Eve sinned and pretty much botched the whole thing up. Sin entered the world. Authority is handed over to Satan, and now all of us are born into sin. It is our natural way now. It is our default setting. It is our default condition. It's what we're born doing. And left to our own devices, we do it really well. This is extremely countercultural. Because one of the dominant questions in life is, are humans, by default, good or bad? If humans, by default, are good, then there's no need for correction. There's no need for a savior. 
And the dominant narrative in our society is that you have no right to tell me um, that I'm a bad person or, 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 th or that I do bad things. The problem, though, is that if humanity is naturally good, it makes no sense on where all the evil in our world comes from. Like, it just it doesn't make any sense. We believe that humanity starts off in life naturally sinful. That is why there is so much evil and pain and suffering in the world, and that is why we need a Savior. Because we put ourselves in a position that we are unable to self-rescue out of. We also believe in Satans and demons. Um, scripture actually speaks of three sources of temptation or evil. First is just the temptation within each of us to do wrong things. Second is pressure from the world and around us to do wrong things. And third is that sometimes Satan tempts us to do wrong things. And don't think that you're exempt from this because even Jesus Christ himself underwent some uh, temptation from Satan. So if he had to go through it, chances are you and I are, like, not exempt. I, I would also add um, and, and would interpret this to say that in the spiritual realm, we only have two teams. You have Christ and you have Satan. Like, in the spiritual realm, those are the two teams. And all the world will either worship, serve, honor, and obey one or the other, but not both. And that's also controversial, especially when you kind of play out into some logical conclusions on other world religions and that kind of thing. But, um, yeah. And actually, I think that understanding provides clarity uh, in our decision-making and, and even just understanding world events. Is there demonic activity in Henderson? Of course there is. How much? I don't know. But we have people here, so it's of interest to Satan. It's kind of a simple equation. The application on this is that we recognize that in many ways we live in a war zone. And that's kind of uncomfortable terminology, uh, kind of given our, our peace heritage. But Ephesians 6 says we struggle against rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms therefore put on the full armor of god we actively wrestle struggle war against the sin in our own lives and when necessary we wrestle against or struggle against satan and his kingdom in the spiritual realm i mean it's it's a war zone article five Redemption, salvation. We believe that God is at work to accomplish deliverance, healing, redemption, and restoration in a world dominated by sin. From the beginning, God's purpose has been to create for himself a people to dwell among them and to bless them. Creation and all humanity are without hope of salvation except through God's love and grace. God's love is fully demonstrated in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Throughout history, God has acted mightily to deliver people from bondage and draw them into a covenant relationship. Through the prophets, God prepared the way of salvation until finally God reconciled the world to himself by the atoning blood of Jesus. As people place their trust in Christ, they are saved by grace through faith, not of their own doing, but as a gift of God. God forgives them, delivers them from sin's bondage, makes them new creatures in Christ, empowers them by the Holy Spirit, seals them for eternal life. 
When sin and death are finally abolished and the redeemed gathered in the new heaven and the new earth, God will have completed the plan of salvation. This is unique because Jesus. One of the things I learned in missions um, is that if I do a prayer, I can say, dear God, help us today. And a lot of religions would nod in agreement. The Muslims would nod in agreement. The Mormons would nod in agreement. Even pantheism, where they believe that nature isn't God, like they would nod in agreement. But when I say, dear Jesus, help us today, now I've drawn a line in the sand and established our distinction. There's also a common narrative um, that says all paths lead to God and to heaven. And, and so kind of the analogy would be is that you have a mountain and that God is at the top of the mountain and that we're all kind of circled around the base of the mountain and there's all these different paths or like different religions, but they all eventually lead to God at the top. Well, this fails because, first of all, all the religions exclaim exclusivity. But the second reason it fails, and there's some brilliant philosopher who came up with this, and I forget his name, but he basically said that no one has ever been in an elevated position where they are able to look down on God, look down on top of the mountain, and confirm that, indeed, all trails do eventually lead to the summit. They just No one has ever been in that position to confirm that. We believe in Jesus and only Jesus as the way to be reconciled to God. And that actually that that has been the plan from the beginning. That God wasn't surprised by this. Like the intent has always been reconcile as many people to God as possible, knowing that eventually Jesus is going to have to be part of this process. The application on this is easy. We believe Jesus for our salvation. We believe that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, he wasn't being egotistical or proud. He was just being honest with our reality. And he was saying, look, I'm the only one coming for you. I'm the only one who can come for you. But this also is application in our day-to-day -day life and not just getting into heaven because it means that we have fellowship with God in our everyday life. It means that we can talk to God with freedom, that he invites us to come before him frequently and with praise. It means that we live with hope and purpose and intentionality, gives meaning and direction to our everyday life. It means that we live with authority over the evil one. Last one. Restoration, Article 18. Now I'm jumping to the end. Christ's final triumph. We believe that our Lord Jesus Christ will return visibly and triumphantly at the end of the present age. The church must always be prepared to meet the Lord, living in expectation of his imminent return. In these last days, between the first and second coming of Christ, the church carries out its mission in the world. Believers often endure suffering and persecution because of their witness to Christ. In spite of opposition by evil powers, the church is assured of the final victory of Christ's kingdom. These last days come to an end with Christ's return. Since Christ destroyed the power of death through his resurrection, believers need not be afraid of death, the last enemy. Christ's followers go to be with the Lord when they die. When Christ returns, they will be raised and receive new bodies. Believers who are alive in Christ at Christ's coming will be transformed and will also receive new and glorious bodies fit for life in God's eternal kingdom. 
When Christ returns, he will destroy all evil powers, all evil powers, including the Antichrist. Satan and all those who have rejected Christ will be condemned to eternal punishment in hell, forever separated from the presence of God. Believers must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to have their lives examined and their labors rewarded. By God's grace, they will enter into the joy of God's eternal reign. All God's children will be united with Christ when he appears and will reign with him in glory. Pain, sorrow, and death will be abolished and the redeemed will be gathered into the new heaven and the new earth where together with the angels they will worship God forever. God will make all things new and God will be all in all. This is the blessed hope for all believers. Once again, this is unique because of Jesus. Uh, We believe that Jesus is coming again. We believe that our time on earth is not just this endless, never-ending struggle. Like, we believe that one day it's going to come to an end. We believe that in the end, we win. Because of Jesus, the church wins. Until that time, we suffer persecution and ridicule, some difficulties. But in the end, we win because Jesus wins. The last picture we have of Christ in Scripture is him returning on a giant war horse, like coming back, cloak dipped in blood, double-edged sword. I mean, it is a victorious Jesus. That is the last picture we have of Jesus in Scripture. Victory is our assured future. We believe in rewards. At some point after Jesus returns, he will reward the people of of his church for the faithfulness that they exhibited to the tasks that he gave each one of us. Were we good stewards with what he entrusted into our care? And to the degree that we were entrusted and faithful, he will reward. There are different um, views on the end times, and actually the commentary on this uh, talks about that. Brilliant people uh, uh, believe different things. Um, The Confession of Faith doesn't nail down a particular one and say this is the one we endorse. Uh, But in the commentary it says "Eh, most would, would go with this. And the application on this is wide. For starters, it means that we live with purpose. The purpose of the church is to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ, to see his kingdom expand and to see as many people as possible say yes to him. It also means that we don't fear death. We can fear being apart from loved ones for a short time, that is true, but ultimately we don't fear death. Death means that we get to go be with Jesus, and that's going to be the most wonderful reward of all. When a Jesus-loving believer dies, we grieve deeply for ourselves, but we rejoice greatly for that person. Because they are now experiencing more joy, more happiness, more life than anything they ever experienced here on earth. As Mennonite brethren, we believe the big story of Scripture. Uh, we believe in creation, fall, redemption. So when Jesus died for our sins and restoration. We definitely skim the surface on a lot of these. We could talk for a long time. Your Sunday school class could probably talk for a long time on each one of these, what it means, how we live it out, how we interpret it, that kind of thing. But let me end, though, with, with, with this application, just kind of overall application Uh, if we were to just put all these together, kind of the one big application on this, is that out of this storyline, I would say that we live lives of worship. We live lives of thankfulness. 
we live lives of praise and we live lives of gratitude. God made things perfect. We goofed it up. We got in and over our heads, incapable of self-rescue. So Jesus came to rescue us. And one day, he will restore everything to absolute perfection. And so because of that, we worship, we praise, we give thanks, because we serve a good and gracious God. And so we sing and we speak his praises for all our lives. Amen? Amen. As the worship team comes forward, I want to give some instructions on lunch. Um, I'm going to invite, during this last song, uh, if leadership team and team leaders, you guys can go ahead and duck out first. Go ahead, go through, um, grab your lunch, go ahead and, and grab a table. Uh, when you go through the line, there's some discussion questions for you, which were emailed to you before, so they're, they're no surprise. Also a pen if you just want to take notes during the discussion and that kind of thing. Our time this afternoon will have three phases, um, all under the banner of listening posts. The first is that we're going to spend five, ten minutes in prayer. Even if it's a lot of silence, that's okay, because we're there to listen more than talk. And we want to say, Jesus, what's your preferred future for our church? So we're going to spend, well, first we're going to eat. Um, then we'll spend some time in prayer. Then we're going to spend some time listening to one another. And then after that, I've asked all of the, the table discussion leaders if they would stand up and just give a brief summary of some of the, the, what was expressed at the table. We're not going to do open mic. We're, we're, we're not going to do that. Just the, the table leaders are, are going to share. And then we'll conclude in prayer. So. I am going to do um, a prayer now. This will count as prayer for the meal as well, too. So during the last song, those of you that need to go can go. And then once the song is finished, uh, the rest of you are invited to join us as well, too. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you rescue us. God, we goofed things up. We recognize that. And God, we say that we are sinners. And we need your help. We need you to save us. We confess that we have done wrong things. And so God, we ask for and receive your salvation. We say Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. We admonish that you died for our sins and were raised again. And God, we thank you for the privilege of being your people and that we get to live on mission during our short time on earth. So we thank you for that. Lord, as we enter into a time of conversation, um, we pray that you would lead us. God, we want your preferred future. Thank you that you are a God who acts, a God who moves, God who speaks. We love you, Lord. Amen. Please stand with us.
Lord, we do believe this. We want to live by it. And uh, God, may we share this truth with those around us. It's not meant to keep to ourselves, God. So may we shine for you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.